Galatians chapter 3, uh, just to catch you up to speed and review like we always do as we walk our way through any book. But uh, the theme of Galatians is our liberty in Christ. We find the theme verse in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And in the context, Paul is writing to these Galatian believers because they allowed false teachers to come in, these Judaizers, these supposed Jewish converts, and they were perverting the gospel of grace because they were adding works to salvation. And Paul was so passionate that when he wrote this letter, he didn't even take the time to uh, really congratulate the church or he didn't really give a great opening or salutation like he does in all the other ones because he wanted to get right to the point because when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the question of what makes someone right with God. There is no more serious or important subject than that. And if you get that wrong, you have to face eternal consequences for that. It's not like an either-or thing. We're not talking about you know mayo or no mayo on your sandwich. We're talking about eternal judgment. And so this is very serious, this false gospel of works. Uh, they were teaching that one must become a Jew and keep the Old Testament law in order to become a Christian and in order to be saved. And, I mean, even to the point where they were commanding that these Gentile converts, these men, had to be circumcised or they could not even be saved. It was just an outer token that wasn't necessarily a reflection of the heart. And in chapter 3, Paul really begins to defend justification by faith alone. We talked about justification being declared legally righteous before God. And remember we said last week that chapter 3 is very reminiscent of a, court, a courtroom scene. Uh, the gospel of grace is on trial and Paul is acting as its defense lawyer. And as he is doing this, he, in his argument, he is... Uh, now, this is all proverbial, but I think it gives us a great picture to remember this. He is calling witnesses to the stand one by one. Last week, we looked at the witness of the Spirit, and Paul was appealing to the salvation experience of these Galatian believers. He said, did you, did you come to salvation? Did you come to faith uh, by the Spirit of God, by the hearing of faith, or by the works of the law? And he's saying how if you were called by the Spirit of God, if you were saved by faith, you were justified by faith, how are you now made perfect by the things that you do? How are you made perfect by the works of the law of Moses? That was his case. He called the witness of the Spirit. Uh, but then today there's a second witness that's called to the stand. And so we're going to look at the witness of the law this morning. Since the Judaizers want to claim salvation by the works of the law. Paul says, okay, let's put the works of the law on trial. Let's call him to the stand and see how he fares when cross-examined. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So with that in mind, let's read our text. Galatians chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 6. As Paul continues his argument here, he says, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith... Of, of faith the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. 
So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for all those that have come. Lord, I pray that you would just empty me of sin and self and fill me with your Holy Spirit. God, if somebody's lost today, I pray that they would be made aware of their lost condition before you. Lord, I pray if there's some that are saved and maybe they're just not resting, maybe they've been entangled with the yoke of bondage, not that they've lost their salvation as that's impossible for a true believer, but God, maybe they have lost the joy of that salvation and the peace, and I pray that you'd grant that to them today. Lord, would Christ be magnified and your word be preached with authority and clarity, and we'll just thank you for it. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. We're looking at the witness of the law this morning, only two points. But the question I want to wrestle with this morning is, what can the witness of the law teach us about the gospel of grace and justification by faith? This is so incredibly important, and it's so incredibly relevant for the day in which we live. And really, it's always been relevant because in the human heart, our pride, we we want to work for our salvation. We want to feel as if we have something to offer God, as if we have something that will meet the approval of God. And this goes all the way back to Cain. Did you know that any kind of work salvation is the religion of Cain? Because whereas Abel trusted in the sacrifice of a lamb, which is symbolic of obviously the Lord Jesus Christ who would come, that was a picture of him that was to come, Cain wanted to trust the works of his own hands. And the gospel message goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, when God gave Adam and Eve some instructions, and God himself had slayed some type of an animal. I would be willing to think it was a lamb. And he clothed Adam and Eve in the coats or the skins of that animal. If you'll remember, Adam and Eve themselves, when they had sinned against God and they their eyes were open to sin. They realized they were naked. And they hid from the presence of God. What did they do? They sewed fig leaves together to try to make themselves presentable before God. And it didn't work. Their works could not make them right in the presence of God. And he gave them some instructions, no doubt. And Abel had obeyed. And yet Cain said, I've worked for these fruits and you're just going to have to accept the works of my hands. And God said, oh no. That's not an acceptable sacrifice to me. So it goes all the way back to the beginning. Man in his pride wants to try to earn his salvation before God. Wants to make a checklist and try to check off these boxes and think, look how well I've done. And it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. And so what can the witness of the law teach us about justification by faith? Well, number one... I want you to know about salvation apart from the law or salvation separate from the law. 
Look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6. Paul says, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed, so then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. There is so much doctrine in these few verses. There's no way that I could possibly pull it out this morning. But I'll try to give you a view from 30,000 feet and maybe give you some things to study in your own time. But in this phrase in Paul's argument for salvation by faith in Christ alone, he appeals to an Old Testament character that these Jewish converts would have been very familiar with. And of course, we're talking about Abraham. Or we've called him the father of the faith before. And the point that Paul is making in his argument against these Judaizers is that Abraham was saved centuries prior to the giving of the law of Moses. And so the point that Paul is making in this argument is if salvation comes by works of the law, then how could anyone be saved prior to the giving of the law? How could somebody be saved if there is no law if salvation comes by the work of the law? And he answers that question here. The answer is by faith in Christ. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. That word accounted means imputed. And we have mentioned that's a a great Bible word, and it means to charge to somebody else's account. In other words, Christ accounted, he imputed his righteousness to Abraham through faith. He believed God, Christ gave him his righteousness. Um, verse 6 is the exact gospel message that we believe and preach today. Abraham believed God and the righteousness of Christ was imputed to him. But then this begs the question. Now, when you're reading the Bible, and I would say especially in Paul's epistles, you will find that Paul's epistles are usually arguments that build line upon line throughout the entire epistle. We see this here. And if you put it yourself in Paul's shoes, he knows the question that they're going to ask because the argument that he has just put forth begs the question. If somebody could not be saved by the law prior to the law, then how could somebody be saved by faith in Christ prior to the coming of Christ? It's the natural question. And Paul answers that question with perfect clarity. And here is the answer to that question. God himself, in fact, the incarnate Christ preached this. When you look in the Old Testament, when God makes appearances to people, you need to watch for a certain phrase. If you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that is the pre-incarnate Christ. God the Father never appeared to anybody in the Old or the New Testament. It was always Christ. And what you'll find when you find that phrase, the angel of the Lord, It's used interchangeably with the Lord. And the word angel many times means messenger, and no doubt Christ is the express image of God. We find that in Hebrews 1 and verse 3. Uh, For example, when you read about uh, Moses and the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, it starts out and it says the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. But then a few sentences later it says the Lord spoke to him out of the bush. And in fact, Jesus Christ makes no qualms about who that was. 
Because in John chapter 8, when he referred back to that instance with the burning bush, he told the Pharisees before Abraham was, I am. He says, I was the I am that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. So the, the pre-incarnate Christ appears even in the Old Testament. And one of those appearances was to Abraham. And Christ himself preached the gospel unto Abraham. We find this in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22, where, where the Lord constantly reminds Abraham of the covenant that he was making with him. Uh, and Christ gave Abraham a clear gospel message. Uh, ver- let's, let's read again uh, verse 8 here. The scripture, which sometimes is a personification of God, has said, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham. This is before Christ, thousands of years before Christ comes to this earth. And the gospel is being preached to Abraham. Isn't that amazing? Saying, and these shall all nations be blessed. And the, the blessing, the specific blessing that's being talked about here is the coming of Christ through the line or through the seed of Abraham. And so that was the ultimate message that there is a coming Messiah who is going to save His people from their sin and He is going to come through your line, Abraham. That was the promise. You can find that in Genesis 22 and verse 18 where God told Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The phrase we just saw. Because thou hast obeyed my voice. Christ is the ultimate seed that's being talked about here. He's also the seed of the woman that goes all the way back to the promise that God made to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Now this is talking about the coming Messiah through the seed of Abraham. And so um, we don't know everything that the Lord told Abraham. But whatever it was, I can say this for sure, he was confident about the doctrine of the resurrection. Have you ever found it interesting that God promised a great seed, an innumerable seed to Abraham? And yet, He also, in Genesis 22, commanded Abraham to take Isaac, the promised heir, the promised seed, and to take him up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Now, think about it. Doesn't that seem like a contradiction in terms? Because if you kill Isaac, how is he going to have any children? Dead people can't have any children. Where is this multitude of seed coming from? Well, he believed in the the resurrection. In Abraham's mind, he must have thought to himself, as horrible as this would be, if God can raise his sons, surely he can raise mine. That's what was going on in his mind. And so he he had a very clear gospel message preached to him. And so we must understand that people in the Old Testament were saved by faith in the coming Messiah, and we're saved by faith in the Messiah that has already come. Salvation has always been by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And some might say, well, what about the the animal sacrifices? Uh, What about the ordinances? What about the ceremonial law and all those things uh, that the Jews were commanded to do? Listen, even those things were acts of faith and obedience. Just like you being here at church this morning, I hope you came here this morning because you want to honor the Lord. You want to worship Him and you want to hear the Word of God preached, but not because you're trying to earn brownie points with God. 
It's the same concept. They were to do that um, out of acts of obedience and love to God, and those things were only a shadow of the true sacrifice that would come, Jesus Christ. And now that He has come, that's why we're not doing sacrifices anymore. That's why the temples have gone away. Uh, Titus sacked the Jewish temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and they have never been able to rebuild their temple. And do you know that there has never been such a thing as a Christian temple? Do you know that? Not one time. You will not find a Christian temple. I'm talking about the physical building. You will not find a Christian temple not one time in the Word of God, and you'll not find it one time in 2,000 years of church history. We don't need sacrifices. We don't need those sacraments as a means of salvation. Christ is our high priest. We are the temple, and He indwells us if we're children of God. So those things were done away with. That's why when Jesus was on the cross, and He said, It is finished, and there was a great earthquake, and it, it ripped the temple veil in two pieces from top to bottom, from God to man. Whereas only the priests once a year could go into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. Now we have access to God through Jesus Christ. If God wanted us to have a temple, He would have kept it. He would have given it to us. But He totally shut it down and told them He was going to do it. Remember the fig tree that withered? That was symbolic of the temple and what was about to happen to it. And they've never had another temple. And we don't have a temple. We don't need one. He is our great high priest. Um... And so I want you to understand that. Now, um, there are really only two differences. Before I move on to my next point, there's really only two differences between Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. The first one is that the Spirit came upon them and did not dwell within them. Now, if we're saved, we're, we're indwelled, we're baptized by the Spirit of God. Um, the second difference is when the Old Testament saints died, their souls went to a place called paradise to await the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. You see, God is so holy that even though um, he, he overlooked their sin for a time, uh, they could not be allowed directly into heaven in the presence of God without the sacrifice for sin being made, without the sin being paid. And whenever Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, when he, when he ascended, when He rose from the dead, rather... When he rose from the dead, the bodies of the Old Testament saints arose with him. We find that in Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 53. And when Christ ascended to heaven 40 days after his resurrection, they ascended with him. That's Ephesians 4 and verse 8. And now that the sacrifice has been made, uh, when New Testament saints die, when we die, our soul goes directly to heaven to be in the presence of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so in this text, we see clearly that Paul is arguing that not only are we justified by faith alone in Christ, but that people have always been saved by faith in Christ. The law has never saved anybody. The animal sacrifices never washed away sin. And everyone that comes to Christ comes the same way that Abraham did, by grace through faith. That's why Paul refers to us as the children of Abraham. There in verse 7, we are the spiritual seed of Abraham. And listen, when you read the promises that God made to Abraham in His covenant, uh, I feel like so many people miss the main meaning of that text 
because they think that when, when God promises Abraham that he's going to give him an innumerable seed, a, a seed that numbers more than the, the grains of sand on the beach, for my paraphrase, is that, oh, well, he's talking about the nation of Israel. He's talking about the Israelites. Well, certainly he did have an ethnic seed. There's no denying that. But the greater promise was the saved of every generation. We're the spiritual seed of Abraham. If you're saved today, you're the spiritual seed of Abraham. You're the children of Abraham. That is the multitude of seed that God promised Abraham through Jesus Christ. That's the greater promise. That's the greater covenant. That's why sometimes the Abrahamic covenant is called the covenant of grace. Because that's exactly what it is. So we see this even in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. Um, uh, Paul also makes the argument here that the law cannot be a saving agent because people were saved prior to the coming of the law. They were saved by grace through faith prior to the law, during the law, and now after the law. That's the, that's the point in his argument he's making. But then second, second, as Paul continues to make and build this case, I want you to know number two about salvation in spite of the law. We looked at salvation apart from the law. Now let's look at salvation in spite of the law. <clears throat> let's look at verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, not only are we saved apart from the law as we mentioned, we're saved in spite of the law. Now, this is so important, and this is the number one thing that I believe that people are missing today in the American church, and they miss it concerning the gospel. If people recognized the purpose and power of the law of Moses, there is no way that they would boast of their good works as a means of salvation. They just wouldn't do it. And it's just so amazing how human pride can cause us to miss the forest for the trees. Now, let me just give it to you straight. There are over 613 laws in the Old Testament. 613. The overwhelming majority of people couldn't even memorize them, much less do them. And I'm talking about doing them perfectly throughout the course of your whole life. Who would stand up here and say, I've done all that? I've, I've met that. I've, I've met those standards of God's righteousness. No, you couldn't. You hadn't done it. You couldn't do it. Um, we just couldn't do it. There's no way. Uh, none of us have ever even been able to keep the Ten Commandments, which the Ten Commandments, as I've said before, is God's minimum standard of human behavior. We've all lied. We've all probably stolen something. Uh, we've all probably taken God's name in vain at some point in time, even if it was just using His name, maybe not as a cuss word, but even in a way that didn't, didn't bring reverence to His name. 
Uh, we've probably all coveted after something that somebody else had. At some point in time, we've all put something before God. We've all had an idol that we put before God. And so no, on our own terms, we're not doing very well. We're all sinful. There is none righteous. No, not one. Our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. And so the law cannot save anybody because it only condemns. It only condemns. And here's, man, we need to get this here. There's, a, there's an interpretive error that I have seen a lot in my time. Even within the Baptist church, I've seen this. And this interpretive error is, is known as ought implies can. Ought implies can. And what that means is, if God commands us to do something, then it logically follows that we're capable of doing that. That is a faulty hermeneutic. That is faulty logic. And I'm going to tell you why. Because the commands of God are not reflective of our abilities as humans. The commands of God are reflective of the character of God and who He is. And He can't lower His standard for sinful human beings. And and here's how the all implies can argument works. God commanded us to keep His law... Therefore, it follows that we can keep His law. But it doesn't work. That, that nobody's ever been able to keep the law. So the ought implies can argument falls flat on its face. And this is true for other things too. God commands us to be perfect as He is perfect. Anybody got there yet? Anybody planning on getting there anytime soon? And then sometimes people try to soften that and they say, well... You know, that perfect there actually means spiritually mature, and there's some truth to that. Well, okay, let's let's use that. Are you as spiritually mature as God is? And so, you see the problem with that? And I actually, I have met people, and I have talked to people that says, yes, I am as perfect as God is, and I step back in case the lightning struck. What, What about when it comes to repenting and believing? Can you repent on your own? Can you, out of your own depraved nature, with your own deceitful heart and wicked desires, change your own mind about your sin and who God is? Not outside the grace of God, you're not going to do it. Uh, what, what about believing in the gospel, which is a, not only a head knowledge, but a submission to the Lordship of Christ? You're going to do that on your own? So he commands us to keep the law. We can't do that. He commands us to repent. We can't do that outside the grace of God. He commands us to believe. He commands us to be perfect. We can't do those things. In fact, if God commands us to do something, He's really the one that must enable and perform it. I think about when He walked up to the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. He commanded Lazarus to do something that in His own power He could not do. But by the resurrection power of Christ, He came out. And so I hope you understand that when you read the whole alt and plas can thing, it's just, it's just wrong. It's just faulty. It is, is, is bad hermeneutics. And so I want you to understand when God commands us to keep the law, it's, he, He's not up there thinking, all right, who's going to be able to do it? You know, the angels up in heaven are not taking wages on who they think are going to fulfill the law. He already knows. It's when he commands us to do something, it is not a reflection on what he thinks about us and what we can do. It's a reflection on who he is. As I've said before, he's, you know, it's wrong to steal because God's not a thief. 
And we're going to look at the purpose of the law more next week, so I don't want to overlap too much there. But I, I hope you understand what I'm saying here. And when it comes to the law, uh, most people realize and understand that they haven't been perfect. They, they, they get that. But they do think that they have done well enough and been good enough for God to give them a pass. I call this the good enough mentality. Let's talk about the good enough mentality for a minute. The book of Proverbs tells us that most people will be quick to speak of their own goodness. And this is the verse that really created an idea in my mind. We, we ordered a tablecloth. It's, got, it's like a custom-made tablecloth. It's got the Grace Baptist logo on it. And on the front of it, in big, bold letters, it says, There is no such thing as a good person. Change my mind. And I've gone out there on campus and I have sat there behind that table hoping that people walk by and come talk to me. And I've had some really good conversations from that. And uh, because they see that and in their mind they think, no, I am a good person. And that's their only hope. Because if they're not good enough, then they're in trouble. And so people are quick to speak of their own goodness. They have the good enough mentality. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but you know, I've done well enough that God's going to have to let me in. He's going to have to give me a pass. Oh, really? Not based on what Paul just said. Because the problem in this thinking is that it thinks way too much of themselves and thinks way too little of God. It literally makes God wink at their sin. And Paul destroys this kind of thinking in verse 10. Look, look at that again. Verse 10. He says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in, you need to underline this, all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Often when I'm witnessing, I do ask people if they think they're a good person. But then I ask them if they think they've been good enough to make it to heaven where God is. And then the, the natural question after that is good enough by what standard? If you're going to say that you're good enough, you have to give an objective standard by which to measure yourself by. And they never have that. Like how could you ever know if you're good enough? Nobody can know that. That's why the works of the... A work salvation is such a torturous, burdensome thing because it does give no relief. It does give no hope. It places a burden on people that they can't even bear and they, they're not even totally sure what that burden is. And he didn't say here, cursed is everyone that doesn't do most of the law. It says all of the things. Cursed uh, is the one that doesn't do all the things written in the law. And, and the thing about it is we understand this concept when it comes to breaking laws here in the United States or here in the state of Utah. Uh, imagine how silly it would be if you had committed a crime. Let's say it was a pretty egregious crime. Uh, let's just say that you broke into somebody's house and robbed the owner at gunpoint. Okay, they catch you. You go before uh, the judge and, and just as serious as a heart attack. Say, well, judge, you know, I know I'm guilty. I, I did stick a gun in grandma's face and I stole her jewelry. But I want you to know that I, I, it's, it's cool. I've kept most of the other laws here in Utah. I, I drive the speed limit most days. And, you know, I mean, what, what are they going to say? They're going to look at you like you're crazy because you are. 
And yet most people think they're going to stand before God and say, yeah, God, I know I did all those horrible things that you hate with a holy hatred, but I didn't do all these other things. He said, do all of them. Because the thing about going back to the illustration of holding grandma at gunpoint, you may not have done everything, you may not have broken every single law, but guess what? You go into the same prison with people that did do those other things. And people are going to go to the same hell as the people that did those other things. And so people create these own goals, and then they reach those goals, and they think, well, I've done pretty good for myself. But you made your own rules. You're going to do all right with that. But you're not going to be judged by your own rules. You're going to be judged by the holy, righteous standard of God. And so it's not about being good. It's about being perfect. And we've never gotten there. We've never gotten there. And it's, it's truly amazing that men and women in their arrogance, they can look at the weight of the holy law of God and say, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. When Moses uh, told the people, the Israelites, he was going up the mountain to get the law of God, they looked at him and said, yeah, we're going to do all that. We're going to keep all these laws. Before he even got down the mountain with the commandments, they're already breaking them. And then he broke them literally because he was hot about that. And so that's how, it's just how silly it is. And when somebody says they can keep the law of God or be sinlessly perfect or earn their salvation by their works, it would be like standing on the edge of a cliff overlooking the Grand Canyon and saying, man, I can jump that. I can do that. No, you can't. Now, there might be some folks that can jump a little further than others, but guess where you all go end up? That's the, that's the argument that people make. Well, I'm, I'm better than this person. I do better. Okay. So you can jump a, maybe a foot more than they can. Guess where you're going? Same place they're going. And so understand that we, we cannot earn salvation by the law because the law only serves to condemn. Um, as I said, uh, sinful men and women should look at the Holy Spirit of God and be humbled. They should look at the law of God and be humbled. And, and we ought to be trembling at the sight of the law. We ought to be trembling at the sight of that Everest. And we ought to take one look at that and realize how sinful and dirty that we are. But instead, it inflates our pride and we say, yeah, I measure up. I, I do pretty well. But no one has ever been justified by good works or keeping the law, and they never will be. The law only condemns. This is, this is why I say... Salvation in spite of the law. Because if it was just up to the law, uh, we'd all be in trouble. Be like that, um, and I'm not making light of this, it'd be like that Andy Griffith episode where uh, Andy goes out of town and leaves Barney in charge and he comes back and the whole town's locked up. Yeah, it'd be, like, it'd be worse than that. Um, now, the law shows us the need for a Savior who is infinitely more holy and just and powerful than we are. And this is where Christ comes in. As we're going to see in the coming weeks, the, the, the law is a teacher. It's a schoolmaster to point us unto Christ. This is where Jesus comes in. The law shows us our need. And then Jesus Christ comes to meet that need, the need of salvation. Look at verse 13, and we're coming in for a landing. It says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, 
that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, in the Old Testament, this is really important, this is the point that Paul is making. Um, In the Old Testament, um, when someone was executed, they would usually be executed by stoning. They would put them in this lowered area or this pit, and they would hurl these huge stones on top of them and literally crush their body. And after they had been executed by stoning, uh, if they had done something particularly bad, uh, their dead body would be tied to a wooden stake or a tree, and it would hang there until sundown as an example of them being cursed by God. They were experiencing the wrath of God. And so the picture here uh, cannot be missed. Christ was cursed by God the Father on our behalf as He died on the tree. Now, this is one of the most beautiful truths in all of Scripture, the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. 2 Corinthians 5.21, And He, talking about Christ, He was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He exchanged our sin for His righteousness. 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 24, it says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow His steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth, who when He was reviled, reviled not again. When He suffered, He threatened not, but committed Himself to Him that judgeth righteously, who His own self bare our sins in His body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Romans 5, 8 says, But God commendeth, or God demonstrated His love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As we wrap up, I want to leave with this thought. The law, as I said, does not save anyone. It only condemns. For we're all unrighteous before a holy God. And what the law does do is it shows our need for a Savior and the great lengths that Christ went to in order to save us. Listen, Christ didn't just die for us. He also lived for us. He didn't just die in our place. He lived in our place. And and the Lord, God the Father, He didn't let Jesus off the hook. Jesus had to perfectly fulfill the righteous demands of God's law in order to even die in our place. And so He lived in our place. He died in our place. And I would just ask you this, have you, have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you? Because if not, nothing you'll ever do will be good enough. Ha- have you trusted Him? But, but secondly, I would say, if you haven't, repent of your self-effort. Repent of your dead works. Repent of your sin and trust Jesus Christ and His finished work to save you today. Because nothing else will get the job done. Nothing. Nothing else, no good works can erase broken laws. Good works cannot erase your sin. Good works cannot take away the burden and the guilt and the shame. Only Christ can do those things. And this is the argument that Paul's making. He called the Spirit to the stand, the witness of the Spirit. And then he called the law itself. The Jews are saying, hey, we can be saved by the law. We can do these things. And Paul says, okay. Let's put the law on the stand and do some cross-examination. It does not hold up, and it never has, and it never will. Salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Would you stand this morning as she comes?